All right, friends. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's a part of me. We did just do many weeks on loving kindness, <laughs> but there is a part of me where through this pandemic, um, I wish we've had some very ecstatic times together in the 12 years that I have been teaching. <laughs> Um, however, in the last couple, when we have uh, been in the midst of this pandemic, we've talked a lot more about what's hard, right? And uh, there's a part of me that wishes that that wasn't the case, that we were all together in some beautiful space and um, the music is really loud and there's that like, we're singing songs together and there's like, that ecstatic sort of feeling. Um, but we have to start with where we are. And for many of us right now, we have reached our limit. Um, I wrote an Instagram post about this recently in the last couple of days and um, just acknowledging that that's happening for people and naming it and saying out loud, there was a tremendous response of people feeling seen, acknowledged, um, witnessed in their suffering, right? Just as we witnessed the breath a moment ago. Wasn't trying to change it for anyone or make it better or say this is what it means. It was simply a naming and a witnessing. And when we think about the story of the Buddha, right? The Buddha used to be a prince named Siddhartha and Siddhartha lived a very cloistered life, very wealthy, very privileged, um, didn't really experience any lack, right? Every need was met. But there was this sort of inkling inside the Buddha that there was something out beyond the palace gates that he needed to know that he needed to be aware of. And... Um, so he snuck out. He had one of his attendants help to sneak him out. And when he left the palace gates, what he saw was death, right? A corpse being carried through the streets on its way to the river's edge to be burned. He saw sickness, people um, hungry, not having enough, right? Um, folks fighting, there being disruptions. And it was at that moment that this young prince had this idea of, oh, wait a minute. He also saw yogis walking around, right? These people in robes or um, covered in ashes, like these people who had devoted their lives toward understanding how not to suffer so much, right? So it was this combination of these two things. And in that moment, the Buddha, not yet the Buddha, said to himself, there's something that I need to understand about suffering in order right, to complete, um, to have a complete life. Right? There's a wisdom in suffering that I need to understand, and I'm not going to get it if I stay in these palace gates. Right? And it, the palace, really, if we think about it metaphorically for us, though it was a real thing, um, is that fantasy land. 
right? Of everything's okay, I'm fine, everything's okay. And we protect ourselves with that, right? So um, recently I had an experience where many of you know I got really, really sick over the, hol- <laughs> over the holiday week. Um, I hadn't been that sick since I was married. And what happened was is that I stopped doing all of my things. I like filmed like a weird I'm sick yoga class. <laughs> I felt so bad. <laughs> Um, but that was kind of it. Like I wasn't able to really do anything. And for me, the way that I normally deal is by a lot of doing. I'm a doer. I have a lot of mojo. I have a lot of like life force in me. I enjoy helping, creating, doing, just keep moving, running, moving my body, all those kinds of things. And so when the stopping happened, my body was like, oh, that way of dealing isn't happening anymore. Let's process (laughs) um, trauma. And trauma, I think, I don't know. I mean, we don't know our body holds all of our stuff in it. Um, And it isn't necessarily like doling out the secrets. Like, well, this is the, we're going to process the trauma from when this happened and this happened and this happened. That's not the way that it works. But my nervous system was like, okay, you're stopped now. Let's exit all of the stuff that you've been holding in your tissues, in your cells. And so what that looked like for me was not being able to sleep, um, my heart racing as if I could was running a marathon, no matter if I was sitting meditating, doing um, five count inhale, five count exhale, that resonant breathing that I teach all of you that is supposed to help us drop into the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, I could be trying to go to sleep and my heart was beating that fast. My thoughts were looping. Um, it was felt, if any of y'all have had a panic attack, it felt like a panic attack that lasted for three days. Um, and it was terrifying, right? shaking, not being able to eat. I dropped some weight, which is, it's always like, that's kind of my, my, it's like, you can't, if you're running a marathon, your body thinks it's running a marathon. It's very difficult to eat. Um, and this is vulnerable to say, but I was so, but I'm saying it because I don't think that I'm probably alone. But I was so scared after three days of this going on and me not, none of my tools, right? The meditation, pranayama, uh, anything was able to touch it. Bathing, um, doing the sauna, like nothing was able to touch it. None of my tools. And I was so scared that I actually thought that I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go to the hospital because this, it wouldn't stop. And so a friend of mine who is a really lovely person gave me a medication, a Western medication called hydroxyzine that is the thing that they give you in the emergency room if you're stuck in a panic attack for days like that. There's a name for it, I can't remember, but it's a PTSD thing that happens. So I got that and y'all, A, I did not know that I had biases against medication. If I celebrate anyone, who feels better when they take a thing. But when it came to me, I was like terrified that I was like fucking up my body. Um, 
messing up my brain. Like my anxiety prevented me from accepting the help in all sorts of ways, but particularly that way. But when I finally did take it after reassurance from a pharmacist, like phone calls to doctors, you know, all, they were they were all like, you're going to end up in the emergency room. So, and this is what they'll give you. So may as well stay at home and take it there. And I did. And then I took it and I was like, oh, is this how other people are? Because my thoughts slowed down. <laughs> Um, I was able to sleep finally. It was this beautiful unraveling. Um, thank God for the Western medication. But, and here's the point of me telling you all of this. A, to normalize that this happens to people and that the suffering that happens to us does indeed get stored in our body. And when we stop and our body thinks that there is perhaps um, a window to be able to exit that, it will happen and we are not in charge of that, right? Especially if we've been working on ourselves and sort of tilling the field for healing to happen, right? Creating a pathway for that kind of detoxification process to happen is how my therapist explained it to me. Um, Because even though I was really scared, um, like I handled it, you know? I, I didn't, um, I was able to function to the extent that I got myself help. <clears throat> but what I started to notice during this process was um, deep judgment around my suffering and a feeling like I have been doing the practices wrong because they weren't working, right? Um, judgment around having to take the Western medication, not wanting to bother anyone. Like there was a couple days where I didn't tell anyone what was going on because I was like, oh, my life's not that bad. This is silly. How could I possibly be having this happen? That feeling of um, really isolating, self-isolating that we can do when we're suffering because we don't think our suffering is somehow enough, right? So when I notice things like this about myself, I like to look outward and see, all right, is this just an Audra thing or is this something that other people experience too? And it's funny, you know how that happens when you start looking for a thing, you find it everywhere. So um, I got a text without even prompting this person from my friend Kate, Kate Ward, who used to teach um, with me a student, an old student of mine who lives in Hawaii now. And she was talking about this idea that, um, about how it's really difficult to trust the transformation process, especially when it's painful, right? And how uh, she's thinking about the idea of like the chrysalis, right? (laughs) And what a gift it is that the caterpillar and the butterfly aren't judging the the soupy process that the chrysalis is, when everything has to dissolve so that the butterfly can then be born. The caterpillar isn't going around being like, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm enough to be able to have this chrysalis experience. Shouldn't my practices be protecting me from this chrysalis experience, from this dissolving? Isn't there some way that I shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening? I don't want to tell anyone about it, right? The butterfly doesn't, and the caterpillar doesn't, don't experience that. And then I was talking to my friend Erin, who works down in a 
really low-income middle school down in uh, California outside of Los Osos near San Luis Obispo. And if y'all got kids in school right now, especially a middle school um, or a high school, I don't know what it's like at the lower grades, so I won't speak to that. But it is a very challenging circumstance right now. The kids are suffering. My son comes home most days and says that he feels like the teachers are losing their minds. Um, so the adults in these children's lives are suffering, right? And the children can sense that groundlessness. And then they go home and most likely in some way the parents are suffering. So it's a very challenging thing that is happening. And at this school, like my son's school, there's been a lot of bullying going on. And so they had this organization called Be The Change come in. If any of you have heard of it, it sounds amazing. And what Be The Change does is it's a couple people who come in and they tell their stories of how they have suffered and then how also they have been resilient, right? And how much they appreciate their paths and that there are paths available to these folks that they might not be able to see at the time because that's something that happens to us when we are suffering friends is that this is just science is that we get tunnel vision um, and it's very difficult to see other choices and so <clears throat> this group comes in and helps these kids to see that they have other choices about the way that they relate to each other themselves their families their teachers and um, it involves a lot of storytelling Right? People naming, like we were talking about in the beginning, their suffering and being able to witness themselves naming it and each other naming it. And they learn active listening skills where they are not interrupting right? or talking over, no crosstalk, things like that. And Aaron said that <coughs> afterwards, um, like the next day, students were continuing to pour into her classroom at lunchtime to have tea or after school and speaking these really, really difficult truths about eating disorders and cutting and abuse. Um, a girl's mom is an addict and just got sober and she's so scared of um, just the tenuousness of the sobriety in the moment and it's made me cry. Um, and the thing Aaron said that they all say, all of them across the board <laughs> say after they disclose this really hard thing is, oh, well, it's fine. I'm fine. Like that. Right? So we were, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been thinking about because I saw myself do it and I know that other folks are doing it. Right? So there's, oh, hey, a bunch of people hopped on. Hi. So um, I hope that you heard the beginning of the story. Uh, oftentimes, when we are suffering, we mm, our dominant cultural attitude about suffering is that it is something to be um, denied. <laughs> avoided, fixed, hmm. judged, right? It's very difficult for us to be with others who are suffering because we experience discomfort in us when we are around other people's discomfort, right? And this is sort of the revolutionary thing, I think, 
about practice. <laughs> so if we think of practice as witnessing, right, that we are cultivating our capacity to be with ourselves as witness, that we are um, moving our frame of reference from a material one where we identify and think I am the suffering to rather I am suffering. This is a really key thing in shame resilience. Brene Brown talks about this a lot. And so um, the beautiful part about practice, and I'm going to talk about the telomeres, and you're all like, what's that? Um, In a moment, the beautiful part about practice is that we cultivate concentration and um, a know-how about how to see with a little bit of a buffer. Not one that's denying, not one that is invested in fixing, not one that um, experiences such discomfort that we like leave, right? We stay in our window of tolerance with this kind of stuff, but where we can just see it and not identify with it. So we're moving more into a soul identification. We're seeing from the place of our soul rather from the place of our suffering. And here's the telomere thing. So at the end of our chromosomal, got to talk with my hands, at the end of our chromosomal strands, there's these little little guys at the end called telomeres. And they're a non-coding part of the DNA. They don't code anything. But what they do is help the cells rejuvenate and replicate, right? So they're part of the creation process, if you will. And when we experience stress, <coughs> poverty, um, trauma, things like this, those the ends of the telomeres can become very frayed and old and shabby. And when that happens, that means that the cell at some point will not be able to recreate itself. To um, It will just die. It won't be able to, to do anything. And that causes aging um, at an increased rate. It causes uh, disease um, and things like that with the cell replication. And so you have one end of the spectrum, the folks who experience a lot of disconnection. Remember that, uh, tr- that one of the definitions of trauma that I like to work with is that it is um, a severed connection. Right? So there's those folks at the low end of the income spect- spectrum who experience a severed connection because of their circumstances, having to work too much, um, not being able to get their needs met, uh, no one's helping. Like There's like, a bazillion different things, racial trauma, like a gazillion things. And then this is the fascinating part on the other end of the spectrum, that same phenomenon with the shabby ends of the telomeres, right? Where it becomes very difficult for the cells to replicate and then they just die off. So that recreation process gets stunted. So it's something that's very natural to us gets stunted also happens with people who experience the disconnection caused by great wealth. So those folks living in gated communities who are wealthy and feel like they have to protect their wealth, like this is mine, and they experience the exact same thing, right? If this is 
not an indictment of capitalism, right? Where we have the haves and the haves nots. Um, I don't know what is. But here's the good news. Is that when we cultivate this process of being able to witness, to not identify with our suffering, doesn't mean denying it. It just means being able to see it for what it is, not trying to fix it, not trying to shame ourselves for having it, not being like, oh my gosh, we should start having I'm fine be a flag on the field, right? When someone says I'm fine, it should be like, hmm, are you, right? Because there's a way in which that's that active denial that's happening. So practice, this kind of practice can heal those shabby telomeres. Can you believe it? I think it's so hopeful, right? So what is that saying? is that when we're able to be in this place of witnessing, like we witnessed the breast earlier and we're training that muscle, is that we are actually helping that natural regenerative, regenerative creative process happen. Is your mind blown? Because we're reframing the story, right? We're looking from the soul perspective, not from the perspective of I am this suffering. And when I was experiencing, this is the lowest mental health point of my entire life. (laughs) Like, I have never been so scared. Um, And yet, when I was experiencing it, and I went over this with my therapist, which was so fantastic, um, I was able, I was still able to exercise that witness consciousness, right? And there's some way in which I think that that helped to save me. Um, even though the tools weren't working, like I couldn't, I needed the medication, even though the tools weren't working, I wasn't, I aming it, so to speak. Um, right. Even with the judgment, I was like, oh my gosh, I can see myself like so much judging my suffering. And then you're witnessing the second arrow. I wanted to read you two things to finish. Um, hmm. This is from Nisargadatta, um, from this book, Being As I Am, I Am That, a book all about being in the soul perspective. Pain is physical, suffering is mental. Suffering is due entirely to clinging or resisting. It is a sign of our unwillingness to move, to flow with life. Although all life has pain, a wise life is free from suffering. A wise person is friendly with the inevitable and does not suffer. Pain they know, but it does not break them. If they can, they do what is possible to restore balance. If not, they let things take their course. Right? And then Jack Cornfield writes, There is a sacred quality to the witnessing of our suffering that is different from suppression or repression. This witnessing is an essential part of meditation, an attentive and compassionate awareness. Sometimes witnessing is all we have to do. And at other times, a strong response is necessary. Either way, that would be like um, doing what's needed to be done to restore balance, right? Sometimes the witnessing is enough, 
right? Other times you need to get the medication from your friend and able to be able to restore balance, right? But you're not resisting the flow of what's actually happening. We have to start with where we are. Um, and this is from Eli Wiesel. Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how one uses it. If you use it to increase the anguish of others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. Right? And I think that that's like, that's the part of it is that it's in this life, we are going to have things that happen to us that are painful. And God help us to be able to bear our suffering well. Um, I, let me see here. There was one more thing. Let me see if I can find it here. This is from, um, Sharon Salzberg, because I just really want to drill this point in because it was one of the things that was so amazing to me about the way all of this sort of fell together. Um, as far as just examining, like, is this a, is this judgment around suffering a me thing or an all of us thing? This is one of the things that I came upon that um, helped. Uh, so she writes, this is why meditation can be incredibly healing for suffering. Despite popular myths, meditation doesn't cleanse us of thoughts and feelings, but it does support us in having a more direct relationship to our experiences. For some, meditation is most helpful simply because it helps us become more aware of the source of our pain. As a result, we rely less on things like denial, self-judgment, or precariously looking for happiness in transitory places. And then this next sentence goes right back to that story of the Buddha that we started with, where he knew he wanted to have a direct relationship with suffering, and that that was the path toward wisdom and compassion, right? That two, those two wings of the, of the heart. By experiencing suffering more directly, we can learn to respond to our situations thoughtfully rather than react immediately. Accepting suffering doesn't mean that it goes away or even that it gets better. We can learn to feel discomfort in a far more pure and direct way without the additional burden of distorted thinking. But I still maintain that some things just hurt. Oh, that's so good. 